0: Join Josie Toda, Alicia Pascual pena and Yasmine Hamady, three young actresses, disruptors, and best friends, as they navigate the issues that affect their lives. From hookup culture and social media to structural racism and LGBTQ rights, they won't shy away from diving deep into controversial topics, even turning to their elders, actors, activists, comedians, experts, politicians, and 26-year-olds to try to understand the world their generation was handed. Catch a new episode of Dare We Say every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. A quick note to listeners at the top, Positively Dreadful will be off next week, but we'll be back the first week of October. Hello, and welcome to Positively Dreadful. I'm your host, Brian Boitler. I'm going to give you about five seconds, going to pause for five seconds while you think up an answer to this question. What's the biggest cliche in politics? Obviously, there's no more to be done with this thought exercise because it's a podcast and you're listening to a recording. But I'm guessing a bunch of you, maybe most of you, came up with, it's the economy, stupid I've been hearing that exhortation since I was a kid. I was 9 or 10 when James Carville adopted it as one of the mantras of Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign. It was meant as a reminder, a kind of disciplining mechanism to prevent Clinton and his aides and surrogates from getting swept up in distractions and to make them appeal relentlessly to voters' misgivings about the economy at the time. And the idea, if I had to boil it down— was that politics is easy for incumbents if they preside over good economic conditions, and it's easy for challengers when economic conditions are bad. Political scientists look to labor market and economic growth in the quarters before elections as evidence to back up the general, it's the economy stupid theory. And it's a theory that we should want to be true, at least to some extent, I think, right? It's It's better if politicians have some incentive to build and maintain good economies than if politics is just a free-for-all that rewards the best and loudest shouters or panders or whatever. But the kind of fucked up thing about it is that whatever the economy happened to be during those pre-election fiscal quarters, it has mostly sucked or been kind of meh for, for my entire adult life. I graduated high school into Bush v. Gore and then then George W. Bush's first recession. After college, the economy was propped up by a housing bubble that burst spectacularly. President Obama brought it back to a reasonably healthy place, but slowly, and then Trump managed not to wreck it for three years, but then did fully wreck it by lying about COVID-19 when he should have been leading an effort to help us brace for the impact of the pandemic. In all that time, though, demand was soft. Unemployment was at least somewhat higher than it could have been. Workers had little inherent leverage and decreasing collective bargaining power. We've had stock market booms and plenty of wealth, but the last time I can recall a rising tide lifting all boats scenario was when I was a teenager during Clinton's second term. And even in that brief run, things were pretty bubbly. More recently, Joe Biden became president, and then things got pretty weird. And and they changed very fast. I think it's safe to say that few practicing economists have lived through an era quite like this, let alone studied eras like this systematically. Basically, Congress built a big temporary safety net from scratch during the first year of the pandemic. And then Biden came in and understandably wanted to avoid the scenario he and Obama faced, where they took over a wrecked economy They didn't push for adequate stimulus, and then we had to muddle through for for eight years. So he passed the American Rescue Plan, which injected a ton of additional demand into the economy right away. And it did two things. First, it worked. People had money. People spent it. The labor market boomed. We have what became known as the Great Resignation, which is a just awful term to describe people being able to quit jobs they hate for new ones that pay more. We reached full employment for the first time in decades. But this also happened extremely fast, and at a time when supply wasn't able to keep up, and worse was constrained from catching up by the fact that the pandemic just isn't over, and so we got inflation. Jobs booming, wages growing, but prices also rising for many people faster than their incomes could keep up. And that's all before Russia invaded Ukraine and gas prices spiked, which made the latter problems worse. And for months, the the thing national media cared about more than anything was this one-two of inflation and gas prices, right? Every night, primetime TV news broadcasting images of the most expensive gas station in town, and people were really upset. Now, more recently, something else interesting has happened. Gas prices have gone back down again, but prices overall haven't fallen because other sectors continue to experience inflation, Except without this sort of easy to sensationalize piece of the inflation puzzle, the gas prices piece, media has mostly moved on, and so too have people. Inflation has receded in many polls as the top-issue voters say they care about. But just because the public is more at peace with things now than they were back in May doesn't mean the Federal Reserve is. On Wednesday, uh, just yesterday as I record this, the Fed announced another big 0.75% interest rate hike. And they anticipate it and future rate hikes, causing the unemployment rate to climb. So that's a very long backdrop for this episode. The first good-for-workers economy in my lifetime, and the Fed stands prepared to kill it. Workers with leverage over their bosses for the first time in a generation, and people are still unhappy. Which, to me, raises a pretty fundamental question. Is it really the economy, stupid? What use is that heuristic if it's a Goldilocks situation where the economy has to be just so in order for people to be happy with it? Are we as consumers and voters really responding to abstract economic conditions as we experience them in our day-to-day lives? Or are we following leads laid out for us by media figures and political leaders who can always point to some passing problem like high gas prices or even a good problem like lots of job vacancies and convince millions of people that things are actually bad? Are there better ways to think about and respond to an economy running too hot so we don't make it run too cold? Or are we doomed to have all the good and overdue things about the economy we're living in now stripped away to ameliorate the bad aspects of it? I guess the overarching question is, can the Goldilocks economy of full employment and stable prices really persist sustainably, even in a non-pandemic environment, Or do the economies of the last 20 years, the sort of stagnant, slow-growth ones, represent some kind of political equilibrium? Those are the questions we had in mind when we asked Lindsay Owens to join us this week. She's an economic sociologist who's advised some of the country's best-known progressive leaders and now leads the Groundwork Collaborative, which exists to think through these questions of how America's vast wealth and opportunity can be shared more equitably without losing the political fights surrounding it. So, Lindsay Owens, welcome to Positively Dreadful.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Really exciting to be here.
0: So, how much of that did I get wrong?
1: I mean, I think you, I I, I give you an A, A plus. Um, I think (laughs) you really nailed it. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really enjoyed hearing you um, sort of lay out that that multi-decade characterization of the economy, and I think you are spot on. Um, We have been living in many cases in an economy that has just never really hit the mark for so many families. And I think, you know, recent events aside, you know, getting those gas prices down, obviously so critical. Um, But this inflation crisis that we've experienced over the last year and a half or so now ultimately really exposed this underlying affordability crisis that Americans have been dealing with for such a long time. So, you, you know, you got those gas prices down and, and, and down big time, right? Almost 100 straight days of falling gas prices. But, you know, the last month of CPI numbers, the August CPI, the Consumer Price Index, says, you know, rent is up big time. um Food is up big time. About a third of the increase in inflation we saw last month coming from rent and food. And, like, let's just be honest, rent was already unaffordable, right? Um, sort of lethally unaffordable, And now we're getting higher, you know, higher rent prices. So, you know, something has to give here. And I think, you know, I don't think this is just the news, you know, I don't think Americans are just upset about the economy um, because they're hearing about inflation on the nightly news. I think, you know, we have been papering over this affordability crisis with debt, you know, consumer debt for so long. um, And inflation has just made it impossible to ignore the affordability crisis that's squeezing families,
0: So imagine you chaired uh, the Fed, which you would in the Boitler administration, or served on the Fed. What would you be doing or advising that differs from what the Fed decided to do this week and apparently decided to do it unanimously?
1: Yeah. So the speech that Jerome Powell gave at Jackson Hole, um, the remarks that he gave yesterday at FOMC— he's gone sort of full hawk, right? You know, the sort of Fed speak, they're sort of hawkish on, on inflation, driving up those interest rates or, or sort of dovish, holding a little bit. Um, you know, he's going full bore. And he's basically saying that bringing down prices is, is paramount and it doesn't really matter, you know, who bears the brunt of that, right? It doesn't really matter how many people they're going to throw out of work, how many people are going to take a pay cut and how much closer he brings us Um, to the precipice of a recession, he's got to bring those prices down. Uh, You know, I think that's a bit foolhardy for this reason. He's got one tool in his toolkit for taking on prices. It's interest rate hikes. What do interest rate hikes do? They make it more expensive for businesses to borrow and ultimately result in some decrease in demand, right? Demand destruction, we call it. The sources of this inflation are not just coming from Americans running around with too much money to spend, right? The sources of this inflation are really complex. We've got, you know, still zero covid policies abroad making it hard to get goods from Asia to the United States. We've got energy volatility coming from Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Um, you know, there's this constellation of sources. We've seen companies actually really contributing um, their fair share to these price hikes, um, even as some of their costs are coming down. The the sort of producer price index. Um, falling a little bit faster than the amount that consumers are paying they're not passing along any of that savings to to consumers right you know they're they're taking all of the upside of those falling costs and keeping those prices high so this constellation of complex factors driving up inflation and Jerome Powell is just hammering demand with the interest rate hikes Um, And we're seeing the predictable negative consequences, right? The mortgage rates are up big time, making it harder for families to get into homes, buy first homes, and therefore more pressure on that rental market, right? If you can't buy a house, you're going to rent and the rental prices are going up. So I think, you know, Jerome Powell really, I think, needs to take a more tempered and moderated approach here. Obviously, understanding he's signaling to the markets, he's taking this seriously. um, But he really is, I think... Stepping way over the line and into into a world where we could be risking um not just a sort of light recession but a but a rather substantial one
0: so i wanna i wanna get at what a what a better or more holistic approach would look like in in a second but i i, I see the tension in even what you're saying about around this question of how badly is powell screwing up or how mad should we be at him or is 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 this so bad that it enters the realm of sabotage. Because I, I remember the post financial crisis stagnation period pretty well. And after the Recovering Reinvestment Act, um, the stimulus, and a couple of other things, Congress, on a bipartisan basis, kind of lost its mind and made this big pivot to austerity. And so, once again, under a completely different set of circumstances, monetary policy was the only big tool available to try to get the recovery really humming. And so I think it was Bernanke, Ben Bernanke at the time, would issue these statements at Jackson Hole, just like just like Powell did, with updated guidance. And and in those statements were, were these notes like, hey, Congress, we could really use some help here. Like we'll do what we can, but we have this one tool and you're not helping. And uh, I kind of feel like that's happening in reverse, where Powell and the other fed board members maybe at some level really do know that they're not cut out to fix this specific inflation problem but they can see that congress can't focus or legislate in any coherent way and so you know they wield the other edge of the sword because it's the the only weapon they have and if they don't step in and do something no one will
1: yeah i think that's right i mean if you look at the sort of early period of this inflation crisis um you know beginning in the spring of 2021 um, you know, Powell heads to the Hill quarterly, right, testifies in front of the banking committee, testifies in front of the, you know, House Financial Services Committee. And he was quite honest about how limited his ability to tackle these price hikes were. I mean, it was he was just incredibly candid. Um, you know, I think Senator Warren asked him if interest rate hikes would chase food and gas prices. And he said, no, nope. no you know no you know he mentioned that the supply chain issues were were serious drivers here and he didn't have a great assessment of when those supply chain um bottlenecks would be alleviated um that's not what the fed does they don't they don't these guys don't spend a lot of time thinking about supply chains or at least you know they haven't you know heretofore um so he didn't have a great assessment of that he doesn't have a strong analysis of COVID policies in China or Taiwan, right? Um, These are not things he spends a lot of time thinking about. He also doesn't have a strong analysis um, or a toolkit to take on things like corporate concentration, which are allowing some of the pricing power that we're seeing being exploited today by corporations. Um, We know that firms that had a lot of pricing power before the pandemic are actually the ones driving the biggest markups, the markups being the piece of the pricing that comes right on top of those costs to drive profits. And he's been really honest with Congress that he can't do anything about that either. So I think you're exactly right. Um, You know, he hasn't hit the ball on this, um, but Congress and the administration do really need to pick up the slack here. If we don't have a a multifaceted approach, we will absolutely, as you say, be relying on the the interest rate hikes. And he's signaling exactly what his plans are. Like he's going for, you know, going for 2%, right? And not planning to take his, you know, to take his thumb off the scale until he gets there.
0: I remember buried in those you know, 2010, 2011 statements from the Fed, they didn't get specific to like the level of policy, like you should pass a bill that does exactly this. But they were basically like ideally right now Congress would be increasing short-term deficits with these kinds of ideas, payroll tax cut or whatever, and in the long run reducing the deficit. And if they did that in partnership with what we're doing, that would – Cause the economy to really boom. Are Powell's statements, do they have any kind of specificity like that where he's saying, look, like we might be able to make this a little less painful if Congress tackled X or Y and they have like a range of ways they could do those things? Or is he just kind of missing an action on that?
1: Yeah, I don't think he I don't think he's gotten into the nitty gritty of exactly what the sort of legislation would look like. I mean, to be fair, the contrast here it's sort of not apples to apples, right, because it's a little easier to tell Congress, like, move some money out the door than it is to tell mm-hmm. Congress, like, fix 40 years of neoliberalism hitting our supply chain <laughs> right globalization you know lack of geographic redundancy no ability to make anything in america because we spent you know 40 years making this big bet on a high wage knowledge economy on a low wage service economy and said screw making anything here like no manufacturing mm-hmm. necessary um you know it's a little harder i think for him to prescribe um a sort of silver bullet on on the supply pieces, um, a little easier for Bernanke to be like, "Hey, put some money out there, right?"
0: Yeah. So let's. Why don't we step in and do what what Powell won't or can't do? Do you remember back in the, in the mid two thousands when around when Al Gore made um, in the an Inconvenient Truth, and to sort of make the the huge problem he was warning about graspable, he had that chart. It was the the wedge chart. It showed this sort of seemingly out of control climate emissions trajectory um, on a graph but his his point was actually it's not really out of our hands if we if we bump fuel economy standards that's this chunk of the graph and then and then if we switch from coal to renewables that's a bigger chunk and so we just need to tackle these little wedges to get the whole curve down can we is there a wedge graph for getting prices down what does it look like right like uh, if policymakers wanted to attack the specific inflation we're experiencing now in an optimal way, what would it look like as a legislative package?
1: Yeah. This is a great question. You know, obviously the the causes of this inflationary moment are complex and, you know, there's not sort of one thing that's, you know, despite the fact that macroeconomists like to talk about inflation as though there aren't really these big differences by sector, um, the truth is each sector of the economy functions really differently. So right now the big drivers, about a third of the inflation we saw month over month was coming from rent and was coming from food. I think we do actually have a pretty straightforward, if not politically feasible at this moment, playbook on rent, right? I mean, the easiest way to ameliorate those rent increases in the short term would be rent controls. You know, obviously many cities have those. There are some limited federal abilities to think through rent controls. We've used rent controls at the federal level in the past, but that would be a short-term fix. You know, is that going to (laughs) happen? You know, I don't think so. Is Biden going to, you know, is Brian Deese going to run around with a wedge chart? that like points to rent control, like, you know, hell will freeze over before that happens. But we, we know what we can do on the short-term there. We also know what we can do in the medium and long-term on rent, right? We have got to juice the supply of units. Um, we need more housing. We, need to, we needed to start that process 20 years ago, um, but we've got to do it today. And that's a place where I think Congress could absolutely step in. I think there could be bipartisan support for money for housing supply. Um, you know, housing starts for residential construction are way down, Um, you know, folks don't wanna invest in building right now developers because of the rates. Um, And so I think some counter cyclical um, public investment in housing would be a really nice way for Congress um, to put their thumb on the scale. Will it alleviate rent prices in the short term? No, Um, but will it help over the medium term? Sort of absolutely on, you know, on gas prices, we saw this kind of, uh, you know, huge increase in gas prices, right? So we got down to like, I don't know, buck 77 in 2020, because, you know, no one was driving, we were all quarantining. And then as the sort of economy reopened, a word we used to use to describe what was happening in the economy reopening, um, gas prices started to increase. Um, but that happened really slowly. And then, you know, Russia invades the Ukraine, and then we got real, real sort of gas price spikes over a really fast period of time, right? You know, over just a few months, we saw gas prices go from like three and a half dollars to five dollars. You know, now we're back into the the threes, um, and we got there pretty quickly, but there still is a lot of sort of what we call upside on energy prices. A lot of volatility is still there for a couple of reasons. One of the bigger reasons is we really don't know what's going to happen, you know, with Russia and the Ukraine over the winter, um, and there's going to be increasing demand for home heating, um, which is going to drive up some natural gas costs. And so, I think there are some things that Congress could do there to sort of guard against an upside shock over the winter. Um, so, you know, on on sort of rent and gas, I think there are things I think there are things they can take on, and then. You know, at Groundwork, we've talked a lot about this um, this just sort of bald-faced profiteering that's going on by companies. And I think there are a couple of plays that Congress has there, um, you know, and the administration even. One is just aggressive enforcement of the laws already on the books, right? Um, where there are two or three players in a market and they're keeping these prices similarly, consistently high, um, you know, this may rise to the level of price fixing, of collusion, um, and, you know, DOJ, Antitrust, Federal Trade Commission should take that on. They shouldn't wait any longer. Um, and Congress could pass federal price gouging legislation. Um, you know, Senator Warren has a piece of federal price gouging legislation. There's a big bill in the House as well. You know, 38 states have price gouging statutes on the books that say, look, yeah, we get that companies want to make a profit, but we don't think that companies should make extraordinary profits during periods of crisis during natural disasters during pandemics i think this moment of economic transition that we're in really constitutes a period of of crisis and we really shouldn't be allowing companies to gild the lily on the backs of consumers in this moment
0: okay so i'm going to get back to the corporate profiteering thing in a second i promise and actually to to probably a couple other things that you mentioned but on the on the rent thing specifically it's the piece of this that makes me sort of – I don't know if it, if, if, if it raises questions in my mind about Powell per se or about the Fed. I mean, I understand that they have the, a dual mandate to make prices stable and to keep employment close to full employment, um, and their only tool to do that is monetary policy. But there are circumstances where the normal disinflationary tool – the fed has can actually make inflation worse, right? And rents is one of them. I think that's what you were describing, right? That if you raise interest rates, you get less you get less housing demand for purchases. People get pushed into rental properties. You also get less building because building becomes more expensive. So people are flooding into rentals, rentals are not the number of rentals is not growing. And it seems like if your job is to find a balance between prices and employment and this specific circumstance arises, you should actually not want to raise interest rates aggressively. That fulfilling the dual mandate is kind of counterintuitively not to raise interest rates in this environment. And yet you say he's gone full hawk. And I'm you know, I, I get that he can't control Russia and he can't control what happens in Ukraine or international energy market stuff. But he, he he must see what's happening with rents, and nevertheless, is adopting a policy course that's exacerbating that. And I don't know how to interpret that without, you know, starting to wonder about like like is he just fl- like. Uh, Operating out of rote, or is is there something more nefarious going on where it seems so simple that, like, if you want to ameliorate rent inflation, you need to prevent big interest rate increases?
1: Yeah. So I think there are, there are a couple of pieces to what you're saying that are really important to unpack because you're hitting on something that's actually much bigger than just about rent. Um, you know, Joe Stiglitz, a you know, Nobel Prize-winning economist at Columbia, um, has written about this quite a bit in a moment in which a big part of the supply shortages that we're seeing are coming from long standing underinvestment um raising the cost of borrowing and therefore making it harder and less sort of lucrative less there's less incentive for companies to borrow the money they need to make further investments um is really counterproductive right um so obviously we're seeing sort of this counterproductive effect in rent but You know, what Joe and others are saying is we may be seeing more broadly counterproductive effects on business investment because of these interest rate hikes. So that one piece, I think, is really critical. The second thing to understand is, you know, I think if you asked Powell this or if you asked a sort of very traditional macroeconomist, what they would say is that the theory of how rental prices are going to decline is that you and I are going to get so poor that we can't afford our rent and that landlords eventually will have to decrease rent right um labor markets are going to be less strong the economy is going to be less strong overall and therefore the rent prices will have to come down um and so you know the sort of the the sort of mechanism through which these interest rate hikes work is really this demand destruction right it's softening that labor market potentially bringing us to a recession um, that results in you know, mass joblessness, big pay cuts, and folks um, reducing their demand because they're too poor to buy stuff. Um, and that sort of is gonna flow through to the rental market. You know, we'll see. Right. Um, I really hope we don't, we don't get to that point, right? I mean, I think, you know, at the point at which Americans are too poor to buy a gallon of gas, too poor to buy um, you know, food, too too poor to afford housing. Um, yeah, maybe the prices will come down, but we'll have a very different problem on our hands.
0: Yeah, that was like a real horror show you just depicted. It's like like trickle-up immiseration or something like that. The first vote-by-mail ballots are hitting people's mailboxes, and the earliest in-person early voting starts this week. Do you know how you're voting? If your answer is, it's September, I haven't thought about it, I don't even have a Halloween costume yet, this is the week to get your shit together, at least on the voting thing. Voter suppression efforts have ramped up following the 2020 election, making it even more critical to ensure that every American has access to the ballot box. At Vote Save America, you can find the most up-to-date information on what you need to make sure your vote is counted in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Use our ballot-ready tool to request your ballot, find out how you can return it, or get a reminder for when in-person early voting locations become available in your state. To win in November, it's going to take every single one of us making our plan to vote, getting involved, and reminding everyone we know to do the same. Once you've made your plan to vote, visit votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote to find out what you can do next including donating to the Every Last Vote Fund to directly support the work of community organizations, organizers, and volunteers. They're actively working to battle disenfranchisement in communities of color, including in Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and more. Do you need a safe space to learn how to get your mind right? Tune in to Imani State of Mind, a weekly podcast hosted by psychiatrist and TV personality, Dr. Imani Walker, and co-host, comedian Meg Scoop Thomas, two smart and successful women and mothers sharing their personal and professional experiences to help normalize conversations about mental health. This is not your average mental health show. Each week, they break down what's happening in the news, pop culture, and their very own experiences managing mental health. Together, you will laugh, keep it real, and create a safe space where everyone can get help with their issues. Nothing is off the table. Dr. Imani Walker and Meg Scoop Thomas discuss everything from relationships with yourself, your spouse, and your parents to the realities of postpartum depression and anxiety. Do not forget to take a deep breath, find your calm, and get into Imani's state of mind with new episodes dropping every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. So what about immigration or luxury taxes or corporate profit taxes like if you were if you were just cobbling together a bunch of ideas to to put downward pressure on prices so that Powell didn't come steamrolling the economy uh the way he's sort of promising to are those things that would help in this environment or are they sort of neither here nor there, given where inflationary pressures are rising from?
1: No, immigration, absolutely, 100 percent. You know, as you mentioned in your introduction, we've had this really incredible job full recovery. um, And the contrast to the jobless recovery during the Great Recession is just so extreme. Right. I mean, we we lose like 22 million jobs during the pandemic, you know, and we're already back online. It took six years to get back online in the Great Recession, and we had much, much shallower unemployment. Um, so this is really a sea change. And you know, I mean, President Biden will definitely be remembered um, as a president who who took the recovery seriously um, and who ran a very different playbook than President Obama did. And you know, the proof is really in those jobs numbers. Um, but we still have a ton of vacancies. There's a lot of need for additional labor supply. Um, and we're still short some labor supply because people have dropped out of the labor market. Some older workers have dropped out of the labor market. Some of that may be related to covid. Um, some women have been out of the labor market in part related to caregiving. Men are out of the labor market. I mean we're you know we're short some labor supply here. And so an increase in labor supply is absolutely going to be helpful. Um, of course, immigration is 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 one tool for achieving that. The, you know, the second thing you mentioned was tax and like hell yes on tax. I mean, the only thing, you know, it's, it's not very fun to juice prices and build consumers. If you have to ship your winnings to the treasury department, right. Um, we can use tax to incentivize, um, de-incentivize some of this profiteering and also, um, you know, to reduce the sort of um, consumption power of the very wealthy, right? Um, We're spending a lot um, instead of using interest rate hikes to reduce the consumption power of low modern income Americans. So I think tax is a great tool in the toolkit. Um, I'll also obviously move some money, you know, into the treasury, bringing down deficits a bit and, you know, all of that can can sort of alleviate some of the inflationary pressures and you know that was a big part of the argument that economists were making you know as Joe Biden was passing the inflation reduction act right particularly um the book minimum tax which is their sort of you know big sort of corporate corporate profits tax soak the rich tax if you will you know that that bringing in that additional revenue could have some some deflationary impact so you know immigration yes tax absolutely getting that labor supply up, all very helpful.
0: I feel like the tax piece of that is something that would require a new act of Congress. Is there something Biden could do on immigration on his own? Trump managed to basically crush immigration, like legal immigration, the kind of immigration that would be disinflationary unilaterally. And I wonder if, you know, whatever the political implications of it are, Biden could just say, we're going to, Help alleviate this inflation problem by letting more people
1: in. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely stuff the administration can do on immigration. um, You know, with visa supply um, out of the Department of Homeland Security. So yes, Um, and you know, there's some there's some live fights right now there in that space as well. Um, I think to get really, you know, not cynical, but just clear-eyed about the likelihood of some of these things moving you know, the sort of lingering inflation boogeyman going into going into a midterm is like not something that a lot of the frontline candidates and the Senate candidates are going to be very supportive of. So there are some pretty significant uh, cross pressures, political cross pressures from within his own party on running a strong immigration play. You know, it'd be interesting to see if that calculus shifts a little after November. I mean, I'm obviously not... Um, deep in the weeds of the immigration politics. But I think, you know, having spent a ton of time staffing on the hill, I mean, there's nothing that gets sort of like your frontliners, you know, your Abigail Spanbergers uh, of the world more genned up than sort of immigration policy. And 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 they really believe that it has political consequences for them. I think I'm not sure the research fully bears that out, but you know, it's it's impossible to ignore headed headed, you know, what, what are we, 50 days out from the midterms?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I take your point, like, we're we're trying to craft a wedge chart here on, on this podcast, knowing that, especially before an election, Congress is not going to do much. And even when Congress is being pretty active, they're often off point, right? Like the Inflation Reduction Act took a year to pass. And it was a good bill, but like, as an answer to inflation, it's like small and a little bit off point, it seems to me. Um and so assuming we're not going to get a smart legislative package to head off the Fed at least until early next year if everything goes right do you think the country as a whole would be better off if the Fed did nothing like waited to see what happened in the election and then and then reevaluated based on what congress indicated it might do with with you know whatever shakes out and who controls which house and so on?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think the Fed would ever veer into um into a world in which they let you know any of their calculus was being made, you know, based on based on election outcomes. Um, you know, given their sort of strong um need for independence um and the sort of you know tradition of of independence in the Fed. I mean. You know, that's a whole nother conversation about whether or not that makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, this sort of undemocratic entity um, with this much control. You know, the truth is, you know, over these decades, Congress has really ceded a lot of control to the Fed. Right. Monetary policy being the the primary lever for, you know, dialing up and down the economy um, because um, of gridlock in Congress, because of sort of widespread Asterian Um, and neoliberal perspectives on spending, Um, the Fed has managed a lot of a lot of economic activity in the United States for a long time. And, you know, I don't think that's a good thing. And I think we should really try to reroute that. But I think Jerome Powell is in a tough spot. Um, Inflation is high. Gas prices are coming down. But, you know, year over year, we're still eight, you know, 8.3 percent increases in prices. And that has real impacts on people. Um, what that means right now is even though this tight labor market that we're in that we talked about coming from the, the job full recovery has boosted wages, particularly at the bottom end, wages are being eroded. Real wages are being eroded because prices are going up faster than wages. So we have to take this inflation seriously. We really need to bring prices down. Um, you know, many Americans cannot afford a, that 8% increase. Um, on top of what was already a very unaffordable life, you know, because of rental unaffordability, because of childcare being so unaffordable. So, you know, I don't think PAL can do nothing, um, but I do think it doesn't have to be 75 basis points, you know, i mean, five yeah. rate hikes this year, right? Um, I think there is um, a case to be made for a sort of more, more tempered, moderate, slower approach, um, rather than what seems to me just a really cranked up, and dialed up approach. I mean, we're now at, at, you know, fed rates that are back to 2008. Right.
0: So to to play devil's advocate on his behalf, he might come back and say, well, look, I, I did one and it didn't work. And then I did two and it didn't work and I did three. And like now it's maybe starting to work, but not, not really very fast Four, same. So these are large, Hikes relative to where monetary policy had been, monetary policy had been for 15 years, but they have been staggered, and he's had time to evaluate how the, their effect on prices. He would probably respond to you by saying, "You know, we are taking it one step at a time, and we'll look again before the next rate hike. and And if it's not, if if it's the same story as last quarter, then we're gonna do it again. And if it's if if suddenly we're seeing a big drop, then maybe we'll ease up.
1: Yeah, I think he would say that. You know, I might say two things back. The first is, you know, this is not an exact science, right? Despite, despite you know, macroeconomists getting on TV, you know, Larry Summers telling you exactly what the, you know, quote unquote, sacrifice ratio is, what the unemployment level needs to be to get prices down, you know, 5% for two years, 10% for one year. You know, I mean, people tossing around like... Let's get 10% unemployment, which, by the way, given the the racial makeup of unemployment, is 20% black unemployment um, to bring prices down. Um, you know, the, it's not that exact of a science. We don't exactly know how, um, you know, in this complex environment, or really in any complex um, environment and society, um, exactly how these interest rate hikes translate into into you know reduced demand and into lower prices, and so. Um, I think, you know, when you're dealing with something this uncertain, you know, I would err on the side of maybe slightly higher prices for a longer period of time, but not tipping into a really severe recession. Um, The problem here is that like, you don't know you're burned until you touch the stove, right? And so like, you know, Powell is just sort of like inching closer and closer to the stove. And we're sort of all like, you know, waiting, watching, like, is that dude really going to do, like, put his finger on the burner? Like, is that really going to happen? You know, given the costs of of recession, given the long-term costs of joblessness, right, the scarring effects on joblessness for people graduating college, the scarring effects of joblessness for older workers and Black workers who are going to be the first fired and have the hardest time jumping back in when when the labor market is 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 sort of opening up again, um, you really have to think about who, you know, who bears the brunt of this. And, you know, I don't think, you know, Jerome Powell is going to save the economy by reducing prices, but crushing millions of families, right? Um, you don't save the economy by hurting people.
0: This is why this thing you said about it's not an exact scientist is why I asked the question about the Fed not making decisions based on who wins and loses, but being realistic about how things in the elected branches of government work, right? Like, I I don't intuitively understand why it would be inappropriate for Fed leaders to say, we know that the legislative environment will be different after the election. We don't know how, but given that it might change dramatically, we are not going to take steps that we can't undo between now and then. And furthermore, you know, just like DOJ has, has policies about not doing dramatic things in the run up to elections so that they don't they aren't seen as trying to affect election outcomes and they're or at least they're supposed to, right? Uh, like a similar principle seems like it would be appropriate to apply to the Fed is like it, there's an election coming up if we boost interest rates by 0.75% and and create a recession right before the election like is that actually political independence or is that thumbing The scale of an election. And so it seems like it would be perfectly appropriate for them to incorporate without necessarily talking very publicly about how they do their punditry or whatever. Yeah. Like just to say, just to say, like we are in a holding pattern while we wait to see how things shake out on the legislative policy front and and the and the regulatory policy front. And then we will act again when we when we have a better sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. And this is this is a really tough, tough question. I, I would say two things. The first is, you know the midterms are you know, fifty odd days out. We're only going to get one more CPI print. um, so one more report of the consumer price index of that inflation index before the election. the The next one comes out, I think, the day after the election. Um, so there's like one more sort of big data point here um between now and the election. And, you know, I don't think much more will happen between now and the election out of the Fed. I mean, I think that, you know, today's FOMC, you know, this week's FOMC meeting is, you know, one of the last times we'll hear from Powell before the election. So um, to the concern about, you know, and, and we're not going to be in a recession before the election, right? Um, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, a 2023 timeline here. So I think, I, you know, I'm not too worried about that. I think the second question is whether or not, you know, if if the Fed did take political considerations into account, which, you know, they don't whether or not we think the outlook and likelihood of Congress doing more to bring down prices increases after the election. And, you know, I think, you know, not to be the Bearer of doom and gloom. I don't think the outlook <laughs> improves after the election, right? I do the likelihood, you know, I'll sort of let my sort of party ID come out here in case no one has guessed it between, you know, over the last 45 minutes. But, you know, I think unfortunately, like it is likely that Speaker McCarthy is going to be, you know, holding the gavel in January. And, it, you know, it seems rather unlikely that a sort of McCarthy, Schumer, you know, we keep the Senate, um, you know, confab results in this sort of beautiful set of legislation to bring down prices. And so I think even if they were thinking about that, I don't know. I mean, I I kind of am hopeful for maybe bipartisan work on housing. So I think that's feasible, but.
0: I Not to, you know, not to interrupt, but like Speaker McCarthy could take the whole economy hostage. And then you've, on top of, Basically uh, uh, imposed sort of sabotage like austerity. You have high interest rates that didn't need to be as high as they were. You, I mean, you understand like like Jerome Powell knows that they did that in the past. Whether he whether he ever like writes it down into his notes before he goes and gives a speech yeah. at, at Jackson Hole, like he knows what might happen if Republicans take over. Yeah, I don't know. It it seems like relevant information for an economic yeah. policy maker. Yeah. to Consider when setting policy that's going to affect everyone in the country.
1: So I, I think what you're suggesting, I just want to say it out loud because I think it's a very interesting sort of dark arts theory of where we land. Um, mm-hmm. That McCarthy, by potentially like risking a government shutdown or or actually sort of enacting a government shutdown um, or or taking the economy hostage in another way, maybe, um, you know, maybe a debt limit showdown. Yeah. It, you know, PALS should bake in McCarthy demand destruction.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, that's really grim. I don't think it's
1: like so
0: incredibly grim.
1: (laughs) Um, But yeah, I know you're not not wrong. I, I mean, I think that's right. I think that's like, that's not outside the sort of like center of. Of, of probabilities. Like, I don't think that's a standard deviation outside um, where we might be. Um, you know, I, here I'm getting over my skis a little bit. I've never worked in the Fed. You know, the, the Federal Reserve, they have they have a lot of people who work there, government affairs folks. Um, I just don't know a lot about how they think about, about Congress. Um, what we do know is from the FOMC meeting minutes, right, which are publicly released, and from You know, we we know how the Fed conducts its analysis. We know what indicators they look at, um, and they are really strictly economic indicators, right? They're looking at different. And they're looking at job vacancies. They're looking at unemployment measures. They're looking at you know the producer price index, the consumer price index. Um, you know that's really where where they're comfortable. These these are macro economists. They are not sophisticated political actors. Um, they aren't even always sophisticated on aspects of the economy outside of the macro economy. Um, and so I you know I I don't know if I would put put any um, stock in wanting them to. Um, have a political analysis because I don't know how sophisticated it would be.
0: Well, they'd have to hire both of us (laughs) to advise. Okay. All right. So corporate profits. You mentioned earlier, I promised to come back to them. Here we are. I want to talk about them, but I want to get at it like this. Let's pretend I'm a rich business guy. I manufacture and sell televisions. And one day I wake up and people are flush with money and they come up and buy up all my merchandise. So I restock, but I'm limited on how much I can build because my factory is only so big or, or parts are getting hard to come by. And so in order to avoid another run on all my stuff and then another outage, I try to ease up all this overwhelming demand for televisions by raising television prices 25%. So now it works. They are selling at the same pace they were before, you know, before everyone got their stimulus checks or whatever, but I'm making more money than ever. Have I done something wrong?
1: So, um... No, I mean, I think you're right. Um, Companies absolutely increase prices in response to shortages. And part of how they are rationing, right, taking care of the fact that there are shortages is they're using pricing to ration, right? Another way to ration um, in the midst of supply shortages is, you know, rather than by ability to pay, which is how you ration by price increases, you could ration by first come, first serve, right? You could say, Uh, We got a thousand cars left uh, that go up on the market on Monday. And when they're gone, they're gone. Right. But we're, but we're going to sell them at MSRP. We're not going to sell them at 20% above MSRP. Right. Um, There are a couple of different ways to do things here. What we are seeing is I think pushing, you know, what we're seeing in the economy right now on profits is pushing way beyond just some sort of tinkering around the edges, sophisticated CEO rationing by price. What we are seeing, um, and there are three pieces of data that make this case, what we are seeing is go-for-broke pricing that is leading to three things. One, historically high profit margins. Um, we hit historic highs in 21, 2021, and guess what? We just got those Q2 2022 datas, and we broke the record again. Um, I mean, this is a 70-year high in profit margins, and those profit margins are not just reflecting an increase in demand. It's not just that you're selling more glasses of lemonade. You're selling each glass of lemonade at a higher profit level. That's how you're driving those margins up. And what's astounding about it is you're selling that lemonade at a higher profit margin. When the price of lemons is up, the price of sugar is up, the price of the paper cup is up, the price of transporting the lemonade is up. I mean, that is bananas, right? All of these input costs are up and the margins are are hitting historic highs over and over again. The second thing we know is the markups are hitting historic highs. So not only... Are, have we reached a 70-year high in markups? This is the, you know, the amount that, uh, the company adds um, above their costs, right? The markup. We also got the fastest acceleration in markups in 2021. So, you know, the markups and the margins are up. And then the final way that we know this is like beyond just some simple rationing is the CEOs are telling us on these earnings calls. And um, you know, we listen to hundreds of these earnings calls, and what the CEOs say is, look. You know, we drove up the price a little to cover our increased costs. We went a little higher because why not? Um, And people were still buying the stuff. So we're going to go higher still. Um, So, you know, they're not sort of, you know, they're not talking about their pricing in terms of sophisticated rationing the shortages are we're seeing alleviation in shortages you know the container index which you know helps us understand how the supply chain's doing we're getting some softening there um, we know that producer prices are going down right so this is the this is the price index for what the businesses pay for the goods not what the consumer pays for the goods we're seeing softening there um, but yet despite all of that softening um despite the fact that folks can keep goods on the shelf, um, the margins and the markups are increasing unabated right now.
0: So, is there an easy way to tell where responding reasonably to market pressures ends and manipulation or price gouging begins? Like, like to, to devil's advocate, the CEOs for a second, yeah, like they might say, "Look, the, the value of something is what the market." will bear for it and if people think that televisions are actually worth $1200 when they were previously worth 1000 then that's how much they cost i mean that's how much that's how much they're worth and how much it's reasonable to charge for them you could reinterpret that you know a more nefarious way which is like people don't really know what things are worth and in running through their heads is this idea that prices are high because of inflation and so that's just life and 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 so they're willing to pay more because they know the other option is to go without the thing that they want, that starts to sound a little bit more exploitative. And I just don't know where you draw the line between the two.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, when we look at these earnings calls, we see the most um, sort of bald-faced profiteering and explications of profiteering by the CEOs for necessities. And the CEOs of these companies who sell necessities are really clear. They um, understand fully that they sell necessities. Um, and they say so in the earnings call. Like, look, people aren't, people aren't gonna um not buy toothpaste, people aren't gonna not buy paper towels and toilet paper. People are gonna buy food. Um, you know, AutoZone, right? These companies that do parts and oil changes, you know, people still have to get their oil changed. They say that clearly. Um, and what that says to them is they have pricing power, right? They have pricing power because demand is relatively inelastic for those goods. And they have pricing power in many cases because they have a lot of market share, right? There's large companies, Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark, these two conglomerates, I mean you know, they, you know, you don't get laundry detergent outside of Procter & Gamble and Kimberly-Clark, right? Um, So, yeah, I mean, and and you're right. There is some opportunistic, you know, price, price level shifting here in part because consumers expect it. And especially early on as folks were sort of getting accustomed to inflation there was a lot of talk in the earnings calls about the fact that the hostess CEO snack foods brand saying, you know, I think we're able to get away with some of these price increases because everybody else is increasing their prices. Right. Um, And so, you know, consumers come to expect it and, and companies know that, and that's obviously, you know, baked in here as well.
0: So I guess the the question is if we, if we can tell when this veers into Immoral behavior or illegal behavior or, or exploitative behavior. What are the things that lawmakers, policymakers can do beyond the sort of disinfecting sunlight stuff that we've been talking about, like jawboning at them or investigative journalism to go uh, through what, yeah. what they're saying on their calls or like sicken the SEC on them or whatever the relevant authority is to, to get them to play by what should be the rules? Like you mentioned, Senator Warren has a bill. What would it look like to make this kind of behavior not happen in a, in a economic climate? Like,
1: yeah. I mean, look, you're hundred percent correct that the line between sort of gilding the lily and highway robbery, it, you know, is tough to kind of put your finger on, you know, some of it is intuitive, right? Like we know I think as a society, we have decided 38 states have put laws on the books that say, look, like you can't sell a jug of bottled water for a hundred dollars after a hurricane. Like that's price gouging. Um, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of price gouging statutes and attorney generals cracking down on price gouging of PPE and other essentials that were in really short supply, you know, when the pandemic first hit. Um, you know, here we have a much more generalized price increases, right? Inflation, this is a change in the price level across the basket of of prices. Um, But I think there are a couple of ways to think through how to approach the dials. So one is you can look at historical price data and historical price increase data. And you could say, if the change in price between March of 2021 and March of 2022 is five times the change in price between uh, March of 2018 and March of 2019. Then we think that's price gouging, right? I mean, there are a couple of ways that we could we could draw lines, and ultimately, you know, these will be judgment calls made by policymakers. If you know, if we were to put in place a federal price gouging statute, you know, another way to do this is to say where we see price increases and markups faster in concentrated industries. Um, we probably know that that's stemming from anti-competitive practices, from, from exercising and exploiting latent pricing power that's been built up through mergers and acquisitions and building out market share. Um, and so there we could deploy our existing antitrust tools, our, our price-fixing statutes, our collusion, um, and we, and there are some updates we probably need to take into consideration now that we've seen this play out. You know, collusion isn't always, um, you know, three guys in a smoke-filled room. It's not always sort of like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs on the CC line of an email with a smoking gun. Um, There's a way to, you know, there's a way to signal pricing to your competitors via these earnings calls. One thing we've seen in the calls is companies saying, CEOs saying in the calls, yeah, we actually expect some margin expansion, meaning bigger profits, right? Or margin recovery, meaning, you know, we were down a little bit because of input costs, but we think we're going to recover that. And then some, because our costs are coming down, but we're not going to pass any pricing back to the consumer. And then they say, we're not too worried about that, which means we don't think we're going to get undercut and have to change that strategy because we expect our competitors and this is a quote, to act rationally. (laughs) What what is that CEO saying to his competitors? Like, hey guys, everybody stay the course. If everybody's cool and sticks with the new jacked up prices, despite the fact that our input costs are going down, then we won't have to worry about any changes here because we can all charge these higher prices. We can all keep our margins up. We can all keep our shareholders happy and consumers won't have anywhere else to turn because we've all decided to lock in And grind out these higher prices. You know, this is something, you know, we're seeing this for the first time. The last time we had high inflation, the economy looked really different. We didn't have a financialized economy, a shareholder economy, you know, back in the late 1970s, we didn't have an economy that's concentrated. So, you know, we're puzzling through all this in real time. We're seeing how companies respond to inflation in a highly financialized, a highly concentrated economy. um, And policymakers will have to catch up eventually.
0: So mechanistically, Making policy that that pushed back against this, would it be like an excess profits tax where clawback goes into effect if inflation exceeds some number and profits don't kind of track it nicely? Or how would you enact something that, that made this not worth their while to even try?
1: Yeah. And I think an excess profits tax is a great option and a great tool. Literally decrease the um, decrease the incentives for price gouging because you've got a, you know, any of the pre- the profits that are above the normal level of profits, your standard run-of-the-mill, very high levels of corporate profits pre-pandemic, um, you're, you're really exorbitant, over-the-top profits during this period of, of, of inflation, you know, have to go back at a much higher rate. Um, and there are, you know, number of pieces of legislation in Congress that do this. Bernie Sanders has a bill. Ro Khanna has a bill. Sheldon Whitehouse has a bill. You know, number number of pieces of legislation that would do this. Some of those exclusively applied to oil and gas um, and you know were introduced back when, when gas prices were rising unabated, but some of them, you know, the Sanders bill was was quite a bit broader. Um so absolutely that's option number one. You know, option number two is the sort of more regulatory approach, giving the giving the Federal Trade Commission the ability to crack down on price gouging um, during periods of economic crisis, during periods of national crisis, during periods of economic transition. That's what the Warren bill would have done. And there are some attorney generals who already have the statutory authority. So, you know, Tish James, the attorney general of New York, you know, New York has a broad-based price gouging statute that does actually apply during periods of economic transition. And so, they actually have been in the process of of conducting a rulemaking to sort of fine-tune their Um, regulations here to give them more ability to take this on at the state level. Um, And, you know, Keith Ellison, Attorney General of Minnesota, and a couple of others have been using existing statutes to to contemplate taking some of this behavior on. Um, But obviously, with these international companies, you know, companies that don't reside in your state, we we really should have a federal standard.
0: I mean, we've been talking about rent and gas, and obviously, people can't just make easy substitutions when prices for those things go up. But if it's toothpaste or beef or whatever else, why aren't, why isn't the response to CEOs trying to wring too much money or more money than they should out of consumers? Why, why isn't the consumer response that to be like, well, beef is expensive, so I'll buy pork or the 50 inch TV is gone up in price. So I'll buy a 40 inch TV. You know, I I can remember being slightly income insecure when I was making intern wages and like, I was never going to be homeless or go hungry but i i remember thinking like oh well i can't afford that so i'll just buy something similar that's cheaper
1: i mean there's absolutely substitution going on right people um you know we've seen some increase in profit margins in the in the generic markets right people shifting off brand names tide hitting that hitting that generic company for for the for the goods so of course there's of course there's shifting here um, but you know there's also um Minimum advertised pricing, right? Colgate and, and Procter and Gamble and Kimberly Clark tell Target what the minimum price they can advertise these goods are at, right? So you know we we like to talk all about you know oh price controls, big scary thing that the government does, but all sorts of price controls in the private sector. I mean, what else is minimize you know minimum advertised pricing other than effectively price fixing, right?
0: Okay, so the substitution effect isn't working to put a lid on inflation. Jerome Powell is responding to it by embracing demand destruction. I guess the the promising sounding thing to me to offset that is that the suite of things Biden has done over the last year and a half could in theory offset some of that, right? Like the infrastructure bill will roll out construction projects and the student loan, the student debt forgiveness plan will at the very least make people less paper indebted or more or more wealthy on paper it'll it'll make some people wealthier than they are or have more money than they currently do even the inflation reduction act will in various ways i think in due time leave people with a bit more money in their pockets so is that how we do this soft landing thing where Powell raises rates but there's offsetting money going into people's pockets making sure that the job market doesn't totally collapse? Or is that how they end up chasing each other um, in this sort of escalating back and forth where Powell raises rates, the effects of the Biden agenda offset those, so Powell raises them further, and we're off to a never-ending <laughs> race to, to higher interest rates that, that Powell will eventually win because he's, he's got all the, all the time in the world and all the power he needs to win.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, like Powell, Powell sure is sprinting ahead as though he wants to win that race, right? Um and he's got the tools, he's got the tools to do it. You know, the Biden, the, you know, the investments that the Biden administration made in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act and you know, and in the infrastructure bill and in the Chips and Science Act, the semiconductor bill, um, you know, these these are not juicing demand in the short term, right? I mean, these are really about building, building capacity, investing in our infrastructure and um, in additional supply. Um, over the medium and long term. So I think that is the exact right approach, you know, for an inflationary moment. I mean, they're not pushing out, you know, a ton of increased demand. Um, but this is not a, a period of inflation, you know, being caused by, you know, Americans who make thirty thousand dollars a year are having too much money and spending too much money, right? Um so I do actually think policies to soften the inf- impacts of price increases are, you know, are 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 worth considering in this moment. Um and I think a couple of things that are left on the table, you know, that did that got jettisoned from from the Inflation Reduction Act and the, you know, that were in the original Build Back Better agenda, childcare and housing. I mean, we gotta do those if we want people to be able to afford you know, uh, to live in a happy and healthy way going forward.
0: Well, there's the hopeful note, and it just requires another Democratic Congress and its willingness to uh, complete the pieces of the Biden agenda that were left on the cutting room floor. Lindsay Owens, thank you so much for spending uh, so much time with us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great.
0: I began the show with this question. Is a Goldilocks economy achievable and sustainable? Can we keep the genuinely great things about the Biden economy, the full employment and the growing wages, and get rid of the bad, the higher prices? Or are we doomed to boom and bust cycles that mellow out for years at a time with weak job markets, millions of people who want to work, unable to do so? And what I took away from Lindsay's insights is that the answer is we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but, 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 that it is very hard, politically speaking, to put in place the kinds of reforms we need to sustain it. What do we need? We need more people able to work, so that's eased immigration restrictions and family policies that don't also keep parents who'd like to work outside the home from being able to do so. We need capacity, which is already in the pipeline, but won't materialize for a little while. We need, or at least we should want, policies that discourage opportunistic business leaders from exploiting indications of inflation by profiteering. None of that is rocket science, but it does require a political system that's more responsive than ours is at the moment. So what do we do about that? If this were Steve Bannon's podcast, we'd say, like... Foment revolution and change our form of government so that we have a parliament and one person, one vote, and just a generally more nimble, responsive democracy. I don't think that'd work out very well. But short of that, there's goals like keeping Kevin McCarthy from becoming House Speaker, changing the Senate's filibuster rules, instituting other democracy reforms, ideally, and then being crystal clear about expectations so elected officials don't continue with this kind of passive neglect, where they refuse to use their power to make the Goldilocks economy sustainable. That's admittedly a daunting set of conditions, but it's not impossible. And if we expect elected officials not to engage in passive neglect, we really shouldn't engage in it ourselves either. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production Our executive producer is Michael Martinez, and our producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasili's Fotopoulos.